Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. Our guest today is a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, a professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center, a leader and role model, fighting, fighting to ensure that there is finally diversity, inclusion, and equity in medicine. She has received so many awards and accolades, it would take the entire program to list them all. Welcome to Always Searching, Dr. Kim Templeton. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great being on here with you, Sarah, and I appreciate the opportunity for this conversation. You know, Kim, you and I have known each other for such a long time. We've traveled the United States together. We actually have traveled internationally together to speak at medical meetings and conferences, but we've really had little time to just sit and talk and learn a little bit more about each other. So I'm absolutely delighted that you're here with us to let us get to know you a bit and to learn more about your extraordinary journey. So where were you born? Um, You're in Kansas now. Is that where you came from? I'm from the Midwest, actually. As you said, I'm in Kansas City now. I was uh, born in Kankakee, Illinois, which is in northern Illinois, about an hour or so outside of Chicago, and lived part of my life there, part of my life in St. Louis, and another part of it in Terre Haute, Indiana. So you really are truly a Midwesterner. I'm from Colorado, and I know we've talked about our family backgrounds. My dad was a Holocaust survivor, never had the opportunity to even finish high school. My mother was a high school graduate, but she was from that very sort of traditional family where the boys went to college and the women did not. So education was so important to both of them, but they wanted us to do what we felt was important with our lives. Can you tell me a little bit about your family and what was so interesting about the journey that you took from where you grew up to come to becoming a doctor? So it, I, my background is somewhat similar to yours in that neither one of us came from a background in which people had achieved high levels of education. It just doesn't mean that education wasn't valued, but certainly something that they didn't necessarily have access to. Uh, my uh, neither of my parents went to college. My mother did graduate from high school. She was from a rural farming community in northern Illinois, and I, I think that was also of an age where women going to college was not mm-hmm. really something that people thought about. Uh, I didn't really know much about my father's background in education until after he died, and I was going through some of his things and. It looks as though he uh, left high school when he was about 16 to work as a plumber's assistant to help his family. He came from a relatively poor family um, and then went to join the, the Marine Corps in World War II and fought on the island of Tinian and then came back and obtained his GED in 1947, which I think was the first year in which GEDs were available. So I'm, I'm really proud of him for doing that. Um, I wish that we had had a relationship in which that could have been discussed. I don't know if he thought it wasn't important or that it was something that was embarrassing. I, I'm not really sure why that wasn't discussed, but it was just interesting finding that out about his background. Isn't it interesting when you actually start searching your own family and you begin to understand sort of your roots and then realize it's, it's almost in your genetic code to drive you forward? 
coming into medicine, I mean, as women in medicine, it's really hard. We know that not just from the academic sense, but sort of the interpersonal, the psychosocial component of it. And not only that, you went into orthopedic surgery, which tends to be a very male dominated um, patriarchal specialty in, in medicine. How did you how did you choose that? Why did you choose that? Well, you're right. It, orthopedics is is primarily male. About six percent of orthopedic surgeons are women, and that's six single digit six percent. Uh, we get excited when it goes up another percentage point, but we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I uh, when actually went into medicine thinking I would do something like sports medicine because I grew up playing sports. I played tennis in college, but I also had a background working with tools. Uh, my father was into carpentry, and so I grew up building furniture with him. And so using tools to fix things was sort of second nature for me. And so when I got into medicine and started spending time on the different services and saw what they were doing in orthopedic surgery wasn't a lot of different from the technical perspective than what I had grown up doing, except the tools were now sterile and a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. It was the same concepts and the same thought processes behind how you put something back together. You know, it's interesting you mentioned tools. We held an um, iGiant roundtable with the American Medical Women's Association, which we'll talk about because you were, you are a leader in that organization. And during one of our iGiant Roundtables again impacted gender, sex, and innovation, novel technologies, and accelerator for gendered innovation. You talked about designing your own surgical instruments and tools. So now I understand how you were able to do that, but what inspired you to do that? And what has been the impact for you? I'm constantly looking to see how things can be better. And so no matter what I'm involved in or working on, as always, I've tried to find a way to make it different or have different applications or to function better. And whether that's health policy or regulation or legislation or tools in the operating room, there isn't anything that can't be made better. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of diversity, because that's how we move forward and make things better. Whatever it is, is by having a diverse set of people that are involved and can see issues that maybe others can't notice. Yeah, it's so important. You know, I tell people I see my world through the prism of space using a sex gender lens. And I think you probably do as well. I know I've invited you to some NASA events. And we've been also involved in a lot of sex gender based educational uh, meetings and committees and work groups. I want to talk about that because if it, it's really similar to the whole issue of you designing your own instruments and tools. Don't you, we agree that everyone deserves the resources and opportunities and tools to do their jobs well and safely, to live well and safely. What finally brought you to do that on such a nationwide level? You're a leader at the American Medical Women's Association. You're a leader at the AMA, the American Medical Association. Can you tell us how you went from being a clinician into these senior leadership positions? My entire life growing up, I wanted to do something to try to affect change. Um, I found out fairly quickly that, I, like I think most of us has, that you can't do this all on your own. You have to find allies. Mm-hmm. But you can't, um, you can't wait until you have a leadership position or title to do that. 
There was a book that I read recently that talks about how you can go ahead and lead without a title. And it's I, I didn't find that to be an overwhelmingly novel concept. I mean, fine book, I'm sure. Uh, but you don't wait for a title, in my opinion, and then figure out what you're going to do with the title. Yes, titles help you get things done. Titles help give you gravitas so you can move an agenda forward. However, if you wait to to affect change until you have a title, the odds are nothing is going to happen. And so that's how I became involved with uh, the American Medical Women's Association and the AMA and a variety of other organizations is seeing things that I thought we could do better, talking with others to see if they held the same opinion, figuring out what we could do, but then figuring out the venue or the organization through which to affect that change. And that includes the, the sex and gender that you spoke about. I uh, worked with the AMA a few years ago in developing a policy that looks at what is called an expanded definition of women's health. Mm-hmm. I started working on that with them because I was frustrated that at the AMA meetings, whenever the topic of women's health would come up, it immediately transitioned into reproductive health. Right. And not that women's health doesn't include reproductive health, but it's not solely and exclusively reproductive health. And so that's what the new, new policy, their new policy states, that it's any condition that is different for women. And so that was something that I thought we needed to fix. I've got others behind me, and then thus came the new policy from the AMA. So can you share with us a little bit about the American Medical Women's Association? What type of organization is it? Can anyone join? Um, What's its history? The American Medical Women's Association was founded in 1915. It was uh, initially founded to help support women in medicine. Women in medicine at that point were not necessarily welcome into other groups of organized medicine. And so it was designed, again, initially for women in medicine, but now has expanded to supporting causes and initiatives that not only help improve the careers of women in medicine, but also address what you had mentioned in terms of looking at women's health through a sex and gender lens or a sex and gender perspective. Anyone can join who is interested in this, but it's really focused on having people as members who are either uh, younger people that are interested in careers in medicine, those in medical school that are in training and residency or those in practice or those who have retired. And so although anyone who's interested could join, uh, it's mostly focused on those that have a direct career link to medicine. So I've had the privilege to serve as the American Medical Women's Association COVID-19 lead. And over the last two and a half years, we've been pretty busy but hopefully been able to put a framework so that we understand not only how important public health measures are, but also looking at social determinants of health, such as sex, gender, race, ethnicity, age, SES. I know that you're also involved um, on the LGBTQI uh, committees for EMWA, as well as for the American Medical Association. How did you get involved in that and, and what have been some of your accomplishments? I was uh, asked to be a member of, of a new commission within the AMA Foundation, which is the LGBTQ plus uh, AMA Foundation Education Commission or Fellowship Commission. 
The goal of that commission is, was to start fellowships in LGBTQ plus health. So we designed the criteria for those and then are currently working on reviewing applications for that. I was involved or asked to become involved and, be a, and, and work on the commission because of my work in AMWA and on our sex and gender health collaborative to look at, at things from a sex and gender perspective. And so I, I was asked to join to bring that lens to the discussion of LGBTQ plus health. In my opinion, I don't think you can really understand LGBTQ plus health, especially transgender health, if you don't understand the basic impacts of sex and gender. And that's something that I try to bring to the discussions when we initially developed the fellowships and now that we're reviewing applications. So Kim, this is such an important area. There's been a lot of attention on, for example, our trans athletes. And there's some new rulings about how and when someone can participate, whether they've gone through puberty or not. I know as an orthopedic surgeon, you see different issues through you know, the muscular scuttle lens. Can you talk to us a little bit about trans athletes, what your views are in regard to trans athletes competing with other cisgender athletes and whether you, you see some novel solutions. For example, we had Dr. Susan Sokolowski on a prior show. She's a designer and she was she designs apparel and equipment and she was talking about different pathways and that that might be an avenue so that everyone has an opportunity to compete. Can you share some of your thoughts on this? Uh, that's a great question and obviously very timely. I, I guess my concern with this discussion nationally is that there are policies being developed and legislation that's being passed that deals with what is a public health issue, but yet doesn't take it from the public health perspective, meaning that there are things that are being decided without evidence to back it up. And so when decisions are being made in terms of when one transitions and how long someone has been on hormones and then where they can compete, there is no data to back up any of that. And when you look at the musculoskeletal system, there isn't a lot of data there. When you look at risk of injury, if you would look at a contact sport, what's the risk of injury to the athlete or someone with whom they may have contact? What are the long-term consequences? We don't know. Um, that's actually a project that was brought to me by some medical students here. And so we're starting research in this area. And so I, I, I get frustrated when there is, and this isn't the only area as we know that where that occurs, where there is policy that is made by people that are well-intentioned, but don't have a background in research or a background in healthcare to understand that the decisions they make are not really grounded in a lot of data. And so I, I think in moving forward, that's what we need. We need, need more research. We need more data to make sure not only that there's a level playing field in terms of outcome of sporting events, but I think more importantly, to make sure that we understand injury risk to everyone involved and make sure that not, we're not putting people at undue risk. So what are some of the injury risks that you see? Well, that we know that there are areas where um, estrogen in, in particular for women has an impact um, and it increases what's called ligamentous laxity or it can make the joints looser, it can make ligaments looser. The, the question is if that in and of itself is enough to increase injury risk and it probably is not. 
um, it's so, so that's where we, you know, and so if the basis of transgender are changing sex hormones, then what does that do to the musculoskeletal system in terms of muscles and ligaments and bone? Mm-hmm. And we don't know that yet. And I, I think part of the issue, too, is when we look at sports injuries, especially for women, there is consistently this focus on sex hormones, which is part of it, but it doesn't take into consideration the different anatomic uh, mm-hmm. changes, the anatomic alignment, what's called neuromuscular control, or what your brain tells your muscles to do when you're performing sports, such as we know that anterior cruciate ligament or one of the knee ligaments has a much higher risk of getting torn in female athletes than in male athletes. A lot of reasons have been have been identified that may increase the risk, but we don't know what sort of that last factor is that leads to the ligament being torn. But we think it's the neuromuscular control issue that women tend to land jumps and pivot differently than do boys. But if you look at boys and girls prior to undergoing um, uh, skeletal maturity or sexual maturity, they both boys and girls land jumps the same. Mm -hmm. Once they get older and they go through puberty, they land differently. So if that's the case, then what happens when kids are going to transition at an earlier age? What leads to those differences in how you land jumps and increasing injury risk? Is Is it the brain, which it probably is? Why changes in the brain? Is it sex hormone related or not? And so that again is an area of research. So we don't know... If you have someone who transitions earlier, if they transition, then what is the neuromuscular control going to look like? Is it going to look like their inherent physiologic sex, or is it going to look like their transgender status, and what is the impact of hormones? So we don't know at this point, but there are a lot of areas where we need more research. So you're raising some really important issues. Let's let's look at it from a muscular side. We know that male, female tend to have different types of muscle fibers, the type ones, type twos. I mean, this is sort of drilling down to the issue of when you develop your muscular system, what impact does puberty have? And then as you transition, can it revert back? Can it revert? Can it change? And that's what we don't know. Mm. It's interesting because when I was reading some of these reports uh, from these sporting federations, it made it sound like it was a fait accompli, that they had convened their work groups, they analyzed the data, and now they can make sound decisions. So from what I'm gathering from you, you don't think that's the case. Right. And, you know, these these groups have the power to do this. They have all of the experts. Maybe there are things out there that are being discussed. But they're, when you go to the literature, there's just not a lot of data out there. Now, maybe they're talking to people that are doing emerging, emerging research. Maybe there are other things out there, but there's just not much in the published literature at this point. So it's concerning because it will have huge impact on policy decisions and certainly programmatically it will. So, you know, you and I have talked a lot about diversity, inclusion, equity. And so moving a little bit from what we've talked about here to mm-hmm. this on a, a, a bigger scale, Do you think we've made progress or do you think we're in this sort of weird time right now where there's backlash and we've reverted back to where we've been? And and considering you're living in Kansas right now, you may see things a little differently as well. No, that's a great question. I, I think we have made impact in diversity 
in that I think people are much more aware of the issue. I think people are, are hopefully anyway starting to understand that to that improving diversity is intentional, that it doesn't just happen. Um, for example, if you look at women in academic medicine, just because you have more women medical students doesn't mean that at the other end of the pipeline, you'll have more women in academic leadership positions because there are a lot of things that in between that happen that are not allowing that to occur. So if you're going to improve diversity, again, it needs to be intentional. There needs to be a goal. There needs to be outreach. There needs to be support, mentoring, uh, sponsorship, there, everything to get people through their careers. But what I think we're starting to hopefully understand more, but I think where there is a huge deficit, is this concept of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so we bring a diverse group into healthcare and into medicine. But unless we understand the issues that they face and we talk with them about those issues and we understand what the drivers are and then how we can intervene to try to help, people aren't going to be feel that they're seen, they're heard, that they're valued. Therefore, they don't belong. And so just because you increase the diversity, you change what the face of medicine is, doesn't mean that those people are going to stay in medicine. In my mind, one of the primary drivers of burnout is feeling as though you don't belong, that you're constantly fighting to prove to people that you belong in that position. You can only do that for so long before you burn out and you may leave. And so that's my concern, that just improving the pipeline coming in without efforts further on down the road, and that includes mid and late career, people are going to get burned out, they're going to leave. And then that has, it, it has two impacts. One, you've lost that diversity that you initially brought in, but then who are the mentors for the next generations of a diverse workforce in healthcare? If women and underrepresented minorities don't see someone who looks like them currently practicing as physicians, who is going to be their role model that encourages them to go into medicine? So, we not only need to encourage people to come into the field that come from diverse backgrounds, we need to do everything to support them once they get there so that they're happy, they're not burned out, they stay in their career, and they can then mentor the following generations. And you've really been a leader. You authored the, the you know, Academy, National Academy of Sciences report on this. You've been really focused on burnout and stress and how to retain retain, which is so important. It's not just recruiting, but the retention issue. If you could choose one thing we could do as a nation, what could we do to ensure that women are not only recruited, but they are positioned to come into leadership positions? To get them into, well, there are actually two things, but we'll start with one. Um, one is sponsorship. And so there are great mentoring programs out there. We hear a lot about, about mentoring. There are a lot of leadership development programs. But unless there's then the sponsorship, meaning there's someone in a position of leadership, which in healthcare right now usually means a white male, who mm -hmm. sees a woman's potential and opens the doors to committee appointments, to uh, leading research projects, to leadership positions, then no matter how much leadership training we have and no matter how awesome a leader we might make, unless there's a sponsor to open the door so that we have those opportunities, then all of that training and leadership isn't going to make a difference. 
and I think too, that's where women tend to, in the mid and late career, tend to get burned out, that there is support for women in medical school and residency. There's support for women in early career. And I think the assumption after early career is somehow we figured out how everything works and we're good and we're on our own. Mm-hmm. Well, we aren't. Those are exactly the times when we not only need continued mentorship, but we need sponsorship to take the next step up in our career. And when you look at men, that's really how men do this. Men aren't started off early career and then made to figure this out on their own. They're sponsored all the way up to and through leadership positions. We don't have something similar for women. For some reason, again, at mid-career, it's just thought that we've got the system figured out. And I'm sorry to say that we don't because we didn't design the system. We're not always privy to those conversations. And so we really need the sponsorship of the men who are involved in leadership decisions to help us also join the ranks of leadership. So I know you and I have had some discussions about it because it is frustrating. It's it's probably even more frustrating at that level than just trying to get into the program to begin with. What have you experienced? I mean, everyone looks at your bio, your resume, your CV, and they're just in awe. But I know everything was blood, sweat, and tears. Can you share with us maybe a few examples of what inequities you faced and how you overcame them? Well, it's it's been an, it's been an interesting career. I have had opportunities in the past to look at leadership positions at other institutions. And when other institutions are interested, you at least have to have that conversation to see what is um, what the opportunities would be. And there's frequently the discussion in orthopedics that we've, quote unquote, decided to go another direction. And that in orthopedics usually means that they've elected to go with a man in that position. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that... Um, they were looking only for a man, but it does mean that there are other things that factor in. But it, those are also times when I haven't really had any sponsorship or much in terms of guidance to acquire or to rise to those positions. I've been somewhat on my own. Um, I was, again, usually asked to look at something and then try to figure out the system on my own. I'm sure that there are other ways of doing it. But as a woman in a field that, again, is primarily male, there are not a lot of uh, people necessarily stepping up to the plate to help guide you through those discussions. Just to switch topics for a moment, one of the things I've been very impressed with your career is that you give back. You give back so much. And you're also an educator. And you've educated high school students and, and folks who haven't come into medical school yet, trying to change public views about for example, muscular skeletal health. And I loved your, uh, what was it? P, um, PB and J education. PB and J, yes. Yeah. So instead of our peanut butter and jelly, we're, we're talking about something else here. Can you uh, talk about your injury prevention program for bones and joints and what inspired you to do that and how people can get access to the information? Sure. No, thank you. It's, yes. PB and J in, in our world is protect your bones and joints. That was a program that I started through the U.S. Bone and Joint Initiative. I had actually gone to the initiative many, many years ago with this idea of public education. At that point, they were focusing on patient education, which is important, but there's so much in the musculoskeletal realm that is preventable. And 
I started seeing that as in my practice where I was taking care of people's injuries, which is part of what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. But then you look back at how they got injured. It's like, you know, that did not necessarily need to happen. There are ways of preventing that. And so there are two programs that I worked with the initiative on developing. One, again, is the Protect Your Bones and Joints, which is intended for high school students, although I certainly have given it to younger students, that talks about injury prevention. It talks about your bones and the fact that you need to have adequate nutrition to maintain your bones and talks about long-term impact of osteoporosis or osteoarthritis if they're not taking care of themselves at a younger age. And then there was another program that's called Fit to a T, which is a bone health and osteoporosis program that's designed for people in their 40s and 50s to likewise talk about lifestyle interventions, primarily to talk about nutrition and exercise, the goal being to maintain bones, to prevent fractures or broken bones related to osteoporosis or low bone mass, but also with information that they can either take back to their kids, so talk to them about what to do when you're in your 20s and 30s, but also then take to their parents to talk to their parents when they're in their 70s and 80s on how to maintain their bone mass and prevent injuries. And so the thought was that we hit the people in their 40s where it's really, really important to maintain your bones, but then also understanding that that's the sandwich generation. So that's clever. PBMJ, perfect for that. Yep. <laughs> uh, when you look at risk factors, you know, you mentioned the issues of nutrition, physical activity, or behavior, such as, you know, we know smoking and drinking can have a negative impact on our bones. Most people don't connect those dots, but it's true. And then certainly the role of genetics, which we don't have that much at this point in time in, in medicine to be able to alter. If you were to choose one of these risk factors, again, sort of, you know, rating them, what would you say would be the most important and and take genetics out of the equation? So nutrition, physical activity, and other behaviors, if we, you know, had to really target something, what would you choose? Physical activity. And the reason I would target physical activity is, and that's anything for your bones, it's anything that's weight bearing, meaning you're resisting gravity. And so Mm -hmm. while things like biking or swimming are good for the rest of your body, it really doesn't exercise your bones. So anything that's, again, that's resisting gravity. And the reason I would pick exercise is that exercise isn't just good for your bones, but it's good for your heart. It's good for your muscle. It kind of hits everything. And that's one of the uh, points of the the Fit to a T program is that we're not asking people to think of lifestyle factors like diet and exercise for their heart. And then there's a second set for your bones. But understand that all of those, there's similarities and their overlap. And so if you can do one thing to keep you healthy overall, it's exercise. That's so good to talk about. I think you and I've talked during the early days of the pandemic, I got an exercise bike and to put in my basement so I could get some physical activity since I wasn't going to the gym and doing my dance classes. But because of what you just described in regard to force on our bones and using gravity to help us, I've started jump roping again. And I feel like I'm seven. My neighbors ask me when I'm going to start to use the hula. <laughs> that might come next. That might be a good way to kind of help some of the abdominal deposition of fat, as, as we say. Um, but I found that every time I do it, even if it's just 15 minutes, and by the way, I play it to country Western music. I have four songs and I've calculated it's like 16 minutes for my four songs. And that, you know, that's a, probably a good 
good opportunity to help my heart, my bones, and my head. Um, I have this endorphin rush. I feel so good afterwards. Are you finding people describe that? Yes, yes. Uh, And that's, again, that's where exercise is is just good overall. It makes you feel better and allows some decompression, especially during the pandemic. It allows you to maybe not have to think about what's going on during the pandemic quite so much. It gives you a period of time that's that you can take away from that. And then just feeling good going out there and getting exercise of some kind. So what do you do? You have, I mean, you're a surgeon, you're a teacher, you're involved in a lot of state and local and national boards. I mean, you live a 26-hour day, Kim. So Thank you. <laughs> and wherever I speak to you, you're somewhere and you're doing something. So what do you do to stay balanced and what physical activity do you enjoy? Well, I've actually, I actually started lifting weights when I was 12 uh, because I was starting to play tennis at that time. And I took a weightlifting class when I was in my first year in a junior year in high school or in, a ju- uh, in junior high school. And all of the girls in my class th- thought I was crazy until they came into the gym one day and saw it was about 30 boys and me, and then everybody else signed up to take the weightlifting class. Um, so I've been lifting since I was 12. I still do that. Um, I also bought some equipment for home during the pandemic, and so I I run at home. I am thrilled to, to start going back cautiously to the gym. Try to go when it's not uh, when it's not busy, mm. but I, I will. I do a lot of uh, cardio training as well as weightlifting. Um, it's something that I tr- that I do anytime I travel. That's one of the first things I do is check out where the where the workout facility is in a hotel and try to figure out when it's not going to be busy. I find that is it keeps you on track, but it also provides some downtime when you're at meetings and sometimes a chance to try out other equipment. Uh, it's especially interesting when you travel to other countries to see what kind of equipment they have there. So I exercise pretty much every day. I, I, I get teased about that, though, when, when we're at meetings, especially AMWA mm-hmm. meetings, when some of the other AMWA members will come in and I'll be lifting. And it's like, well, of course, this orthopedic surgeon is lifting. It's like, I've done it for decades now. This is just kind of who I am. Part of your life. I remember coming into the gym with you, I think, at a, a AMWA meeting and, and you were there. I think we, we ran on our treadmills together. Now, as the world is somewhat chaotic, we have to admit every day is something new, a new challenge. What would be your message for your colleagues, for our listeners, for yourself to find a way to just realistically transform our lives to a place of peace? I think it's um, a few things. I think one is reinforcing that we can't do everything and that to have balance in life and try to figure out what your goals are, both personally and professionally, and what you can do to try to achieve those. And I think also as the, as the country and the world are starting to hopefully carefully open up after the pandemic, it's understanding that a lot of people have not had much in terms of in-person interaction with another human, or at least not a lot of people in groups. And so if interpersonal interactions are challenging and you've spent much of the past two and a half years meeting most people virtually, 
and now you're back in a position where you are face-to-face with someone to give yourself some grace and understand that there will be some challenges in getting adapted to that again. It's, it's trying to remember what our lives used to be like two and a half years ago. And we learned quickly how to adopt another way of living and surviving in society and new ways of working, new ways of interacting with each other. As we're going back to how things used to be, that transition isn't necessarily going to be easy for everyone. Yeah, and we're still so much in this pandemic. So I know for so many, it's it's fearful times still. And I think I really appreciate your, your use of the word grace. I think with grace, we can find a way to be at peace with ourselves and to hopefully open our hearts to others. So Kim, Dr. Templeton, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your words of wisdom, for trying to change the world so that we are strong and that we are united, and that we find the beauty in each of ourselves. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. So until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching.